open up to Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20, we are in a sermon series on the book of Numbers. And as you're turning there, I want you to think about a question. Who is the hero of your story? Who is the hero of your story? We like heroes. We like the idea of heroes right now, in case you didn't know. We're in the time of the football playoffs, right? There's always names that come up. There's heroes that come out of it. If you're a Bills fan, you've got Josh Allen, of course, Stefan Diggs, Dalton Kincaid, James Cook. My wife's a big 49ers fan. They won last night. Congrats. Brock Purdy, Brandon Ayuk, Debo Samuel, Christian McCaffrey. You got some big ones. Kansas City Chiefs. Careful. You got people like Patrick Mahomes, Travis Kelsey, Taylor Swift. I mean, people that are important (laughs) to those teams that they look to as difference makers for their organizations. I couldn't help myself. I'm sorry. If you have no idea why that's funny, God bless you. You're a greater person than I. But we do like the idea of heroes. We like these people that it's like, man, when they show up, something amazing is going to happen. And I think if we look in our own hearts, there are times we want to be that person. We want to be the difference maker in our lives, in our culture, in our families. We want to be a hero. And that's good to a point. As long as we keep a bigger perspective. We're in this sermon series called Are We There Yet? Glory, Grace, and Grumbling in the book of Numbers. We're walking through this this very dense Old Testament book. It's not one that a lot of people spend time studying. Uh, It's very ancient, very historical. It's kind of hard to get into sometimes to understand what's going on. But it's an important book. The background of the book of Numbers is that God has rescued the Israelites out of Egypt. You might know the story of the Exodus. They were enslaved. Raises up Moses. He delivers his people out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea and he brings them into the wilderness. And the promise is that he's going to take them onto the promised land. But the book of Exodus really ends with them at this place called Mount Sinai. And God gives them the law, this explanation of who he is and what their relationship with him is going to look like. And then Numbers kind of picks up after that. Tells the rest of the story from Mount Sinai to the promised land. And it is a very windy, twisty path. Throughout the books of Exodus and the books, the book of number, Numbers, Moses is very much a hero. He is the guy in passage after passage after passage that God raises up and uses in these powerful, majestic ways. But Moses, as this leader of the Israelites, has to lead in many very difficult circumstances, over and over again, facing Difficulty, rebellion, complaining, and grumbling. And so I put that in the subtitle of this sermon series, this grumbling, because that word is used over and over in the book of Numbers. God's people grumble against Moses. They grumble against Aaron and their other leaders. And over and over again, they grumble against the Lord. Now, why? What's the big deal with the the grumbling? Is it okay to come to God and say, God, I don't really understand. Can you explain this to me? I'm struggling with this. God, I don't like the way that this is going. Can you please change it? And the answer is yes, actually. 
Scripture gives us many examples of bringing a concern to the Lord and Him being okay with it and Him listening to us. There's a whole genre in Scripture called laments, and that's what they are. They're like a complaint. God, what are you doing? Help me to understand. Grumbling is different. The grumbling that is going on in the book of Numbers is the grumbling of people saying, God, you're doing a bad job. I could do better. In fact, God, if you would just get out of my way, I'm going to do it the way I think it should go. And this grumbling by God's people goes on over and over again throughout the book of Numbers. Now, the first 10 chapters of Numbers is kind of great. It's, it's like God says, here's what you're going to do. And they're all like, yep, we're going to do that. And then the text says, and this is exactly what they did, exactly what God says. And that goes on for 10 chapters. Here's what God says to do, and they're going to do it, and they're ready to go, and everything's going to be great. And then we get to chapter 11, verse 1. Now the people complained about their hardship and the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused. So right away, as they step out from the camp and they begin this journey to the promised land, that's the end of chapter 10, chapter 11, the complaining and the grumbling starts. The people think that they could do a better job than God. That God's plans, God's purposes, God's will is is somehow less than what they could have figured out and accomplished on their own. And we get this pattern in the book of Numbers, and I think it's a pattern in all of Scripture, God shows up, does something amazing, rescues his people. The people are like, yeah, we love you, the Lord. We're we're all in. We love you, and we're going to follow you. And then things get tough, and they start grumbling and complaining and doing things their own way. And the pattern goes on and on and on. Chapters 13 and 14 in Numbers is maybe the best example of this, or maybe a better word is the worst example of this. When we come to the book of or chapters 13 and 14, God brings them right to the edge of the promised land. They're about to go in, take hold of this land that he has promised them for so long. And they send in these spies and they come back with a story basically saying, we can't do this. We'll never accomplish it. God is wrong. We're all going to die and it would be better to go back to Egypt. And they grumble. They grumble against Moses and Aaron, or Numbers chapter 14, verses 2 and 3. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Do you hear the accusations? God is wrong. And you leaders chosen by God, you are wrong. We know better. Our wives and our children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And in that same passage in verse 10, they are ready to kill Moses and their other leaders. But then something amazing happens. This tension-filled scene, God shows up. He lets his glory be made known. They know that God is among them. It says, then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. They're complaining against God, thinking they could do better. They're complaining against Moses. And God in his glory shows up. And it's like for a moment, they get this glimpse and they're thinking, I hope, what are we thinking? 
Who do we think we are to, to complain and grumble against the glory of the Lord God Almighty? He shows up. God shows who he is. And by doing so, he really also shows that he has chosen Moses. Moses is the guy that he has chosen to lead the Israelites. And so by defending his own glory, he's also defending Moses. Moses is the one that he has chosen to lead. But it's a tough job. Because you would think a scene like that, God shows up, his glory shows up, people are like, well, we're never doing that again. But it happens again and again and again. And Numbers, I think, helps us to be sympathetic to Moses. Over and over again, the people complain and rebel. Over and over again, Moses tells them they are sinning against God. Over and over again, Moses even prays to God on behalf of the people to save them. And over and over again, Moses obeys God and helps the people to see who God is and to focus on God's glory and his power over and over again. And the journey from the promised land, or I'm sorry, from Egypt to the promised land should have only taken a few weeks to maybe a month or two if they were really going slow. Instead, we know from Scripture it ended up taking 40 years because the people rebelled in the wilderness and God said that the generation that left Egypt will not enter the promised land. They will wander in the desert until that generation dies off and he will take their children into the promised land to fulfill his promise. See, the problem with grumbling is that we get so convinced of our own rightness that somehow we think we've got the whole picture, we've got it all figured out, and we're going to tell God what he should do or what he should have done in the first place. We want to make much of ourselves, and we fail to step back and recognize that God is God and we are not that he is in control, that he actually knows all things. And so we have this ongoing pattern in the book of Numbers, and this all comes to a tipping point for Moses in chapter 20. And yes, we are getting to chapter 20. In chapter 20, I want to slow down and take a very careful look at what happens to Moses and Aaron, but the focus is really on Moses in verses 1 through 13. And before we get there, and I do want to read it, but before we get into it, we need to keep a few things in mind. We need to remember that Moses has been dealing with this grumbling, this complaining for a long time. Moses has had to put up with this over and over again. There's something else that's not very clear, and that's the time. Chapter 20 starts off, in the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zen. Well, the first month of what? We're not told. First month of the year, presumably, but what year? We're not told. Now, what's interesting is if you look ahead to the next chapters, all the way through the end of Numbers, from this point on, they are very close to entering into the promised land. And so we can deduce that more than likely at the beginning of chapter 20, 38 years have passed. 38 years of the people wandering in the wilderness. Now, even if that deduction is wrong, 
Even if this is still early on in the wilderness wanderings and it's just been a couple years, that's still a couple years of constantly dealing with this group that is complaining against him and against God and wanting to kill him for it. So even if it's just two or three years, I think we need to be sympathetic to Moses. But if scholars are right, and many of them agree on this, that it has been 38 years that Moses has had to deal with this, we can understand a bit of Moses' mindset as we walk through this passage. Numbers does not give a detailed account of every year of the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. It's not the point. It's not a historical textbook to help us understand everything that's happened. It wants us to understand who God is and how he's dealing with his people, especially his grumbling people, and how he shows his glory and gives grace to them. So, as we come to this chapter, we have to understand that we're entering into a very difficult context. This complaining and grumbling Moses is getting frustrated and tired with the people. He's probably getting frustrated with God at this point. We see that from time to time. And the people complain. They're going to complain because they're thirsty. God's going to tell Moses what to do to bring water out of a rock so that the people can drink. Moses does this, but not exactly the way God told him to do it. And at the end of the passage, God will tell Moses that Moses will no longer be allowed to enter the promised land because of what happens in these 13 verses. Now, this is tough. It's tough because it seems like Moses makes this mistake. Maybe it's a big mistake. Maybe it's a little mistake. But it seems like a mistake. It almost seems like no big deal. Why is it then that it appears, at least to us, like God's being really harsh against Moses? Why is this such a big deal? And so I want us to look carefully at the key details in this passage so that we can understand what's going on. So look at verse 1. We pick up some key details already. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zen and they stayed at Kadesh. There, Miriam died and was buried. Miriam is Moses' sister. Aaron's sister as well. They were all brother and sister. Miriam, in many ways, is one of the heroes of the Exodus and the book of Numbers. She has her struggles, as does Aaron, as does Moses. But she is used by God in many amazing ways. But the beginning of this chapter starts with Miriam dying. I can only imagine as Moses, someone who had ministered with Miriam over the years, that Miriam had helped him in leadership, sometimes not so helpfully. But I imagine this is a hard loss. If you skip ahead, we're not going to look at it this week, but at the end of the chapter, it says the death of Aaron. So he's going to lose his sister. Later, he's going to lose his brother. And what happens to Moses is right here in the middle. The other thing that we learn is some names. And I know we kind of gloss over names. Our eyes kind of go, you know, roll back a little bit. We think, I don't really know what's going on. But we see the desert of Zen, and they're staying at Kadesh. These names have come up over and over again throughout the books of Numbers and Exodus. And the author is using them to try to highlight something. In Numbers chapter 13 and 14, when the people rebelled the first time and refused to enter the promised land, these same place names came up again. 
The spies went out from this area of the desert of Zin. They came back and the rebellion took place at this area called Kadesh. There's a lot of debate as to whether or not it was the exact same area, but I think that misses the point. The word Kadesh means hold as holy. And so they often would name place names as they wandered throughout the wilderness and journeyed to the promised land. They would name uh, the places according to things that were happening. And the word Kadesh means to hold as holy. Remember that. Now as we get into the rest of the chapters, we'll start seeing some of these, or the rest of the verses rather, we'll see some of these important themes. Look at 2 through 5. Now there was no water for the community. The people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this this wilderness, that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Again, they grumble. Again, they're mentioning some of the very same things. It's ironic, too, because a lot of the things they mention are the things the spies came back from the promised land and said, it's great, all these things are in the promised land, and they decided not to go into the promised land, and now they're going, God, why aren't you giving us these things? And I imagine God going, I did. I wanted to. You refused. Here we see again that Moses is having to take the brunt of their complaints and their anger Again, they are questioning God's plan and saying that what God has done is wrong. And again, there is this complaint about water. And that's the key issue here. In verse 13, if we skip ahead to the end of this passage, it says, these were the waters of Meribah. This place ends up having two names, Kadesh and Meribah. I don't expect you to remember those. You don't have to. But the word Meribah means quarreling. Quarreling fighting against the Lord. And so we have this place that is Kadesh, set apart as holy, that is also quarreling. And those are the two main themes in what's going on here with Moses. And that name Meribah also recalls something from their history. If we go all the way back to the book of Exodus, shortly after crossing the Red Sea, God delivers his people this powerful miracle that they know they didn't do on their own, something they could never have done, and God does it, separating the waters of the Red Sea. They walk through, and they get to the other side, and they grumble, and they complain, specifically about water. And there, God tells Moses to go out before the people, and that God would stand before Moses before a rock and draw water out of the rock. And Moses calls this place Meribah which means quarreling. Understand that these names, and I know it's hard, I know there's a lot of digging that has to happen, but that's the author's way of shining a spotlight on what's going on and saying these things tie together. Pay attention to this. We've seen this situation before. People grumbling against God and Moses, God telling Moses what to do to provide for the people. But the bigger issue in all of this is that Every time God gives instructions to Moses, it's so that the people will see the glory of God. It's not just Moses do this to solve their problem. It's Moses do this so they will see who I am. Everything, everything that Moses was to do was to point to the glory 
of God. And so we need to look through this passage now, starting in verse 6. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. Look at the instructions that God gives to Moses. He says, take the staff. And later on, it says, from the Lord's presence. If you skip down to verse 9, he explains Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence. There's a little bit of debate about what this staff is, whose staff is it. It can either be Moses' staff or Aaron's staff. And the reason that's important is that Aaron's staff was this time, this miracle. God caused Aaron's staff to bud to prove that God had chosen Aaron to be the high priest. And it kind of this confirmation of the whole priestly system. And that staff was put into the Holy of Holies in front of the, the Ark of God. So it's possible it's talking about that. He does call it Moses' staff. Moses' staff also has quite a history. If you remember when God shows up in the burning bush to Moses, and Moses is like, yeah, I can't do this. God says, you're going you're gonna to rescue my people. I'm using you. And Moses is like, yeah, yeah not me. How am I supposed to know that this is going to work out? How am I supposed to know that you are who you say you are? And God tells Moses, take your staff and throw it down. And he does, and it becomes a snake. And then Moses picks it back up. And it's this confirmation of God's power and his call to Moses. And in Exodus chapter 4, verse 20, that staff is actually called the staff of God. So this staff became this ever-present symbol with Moses. God is with me. These are his people. I am simply his instrument, his tool in his hand. It is the same staff that Moses holds up before the Red Sea when God parts the Red Sea. It's the same staff when a plague of snakes breaks out among the people and they're dying. Moses holds up the staff and the people look to it and they're saved. This has a big history. But the history of these staffs, whether it's Aaron's or Moses, doesn't really matter. The history of the staff is that they don't point to Aaron and Moses. They point to God. When Moses did something with the staff, the people knew God is at work. He tells them, get your staff, gather the assembly, speak to the rock, and the water will come out. And there's this key question. Who's going to bring water from the rock? In verse 8, God says, you, Aaron, Moses, you will bring water from the rock for the community. But the whole testimony of the books of Numbers and Exodus is that every time Aaron or Moses was used by God for one of these miracles, that miracle pointed to God, not to Abraham, or not to Moses and Aaron. God would use them to do the miracle, but God was to get all of the credit. Now let's look at verses 9 through 11. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. We see what God said, and now we see what Moses does. God said, take the staff. Moses takes the staff. Great. God said, assemble the people. Moses assembles the people. Perfect. 
And then it says, then Moses said to them, hold the phone. What did God tell Moses to do? Who was he supposed to talk to? The rock. God told Moses, gather the people, speak to the rock and draw water out of it. Moses says, wait a minute, I want to talk to the people. And look at what he says. Listen, you rebels. God didn't tell Moses to judge the people. It's not necessarily that Moses is wrong, but this is not what God told him to do. And what does he mean by rebels? Who are they rebelling against? Well, we know from our deep theology and and New Testament mindset, well, they're rebelling against God, but I'm not sure that's what Moses is talking about. Moses here is clearly showing a lot of frustration. I think he's saying, you guys are rebelling against me again. Again. Because then the next phrase, I think, makes it clear, must we bring you water out of this rock? Do I have to do it again for you people before you will understand that I'm your leader? Do I have to perform this miracle again to prove to you who I am and get you to stop rebelling against me? Do I have to justify my leadership one more time? And notice what's missing. Any reference to the Lord whatsoever. Moses was told to speak to the rock. Instead, he strikes it. This might not seem a big deal, but look at how God responds. This is helpful. Before we come to Scripture and like judge what we think should happen and what it means, look at what Scripture itself says. Verse 12 The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. God clearly sees a very big problem with what Moses has done. This goes beyond just a small mistake. This goes beyond just some sort of act of disobedience that someone could come and just say, God, I'm sorry, forgive me. So what's the big deal? God points out two major problems with what Moses and Aaron did. Do you see them there? He says, number one, you did not trust me enough. He says, Moses, what you have done, you did not do out of trust. You did it for some other reason, some other agenda. It was not done out of faith and trusting in the Lord. And I think the implication is they were trusting in themselves. We're going to do this to justify ourselves to these complaining people. And I can sympathize with that. I think we read this and I want to make sure that we sympathize even as we understand what Moses has done wrong. But it does seem that Moses and Aaron thought that they were the ones who were going to justify themselves by bringing water from the rock. He says, you did not trust in me enough. And then he says, to honor me is holy in the sight of the Israelites. Holy means set apart. Set apart as special, as greater, as different, as other. Not some common thing, but greater than anything else. And God says, To Moses, you did not set me apart as holy. You didn't give me the credit that I deserve. You didn't show before my people that I am God and they are not. Basically, what he's saying is, Moses, you made this about you instead of about the Lord God Almighty. Aaron and Moses did not do what they did to show how great God was. They did it to prove how great they were. 
and look at the result. Verse 13. These were the waters of Meribah where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord and where he was proved holy among them. See, Moses and Aaron failed to do something. They failed to show God as holy to God's people. And yet God shows that he is holy. He did the very thing that Moses and Aaron failed to do. So is this story about a mistake? Is it about a God who is harsh and sitting on the throne just waiting to zap people that screw up? Say, well, you're going to hell because you did that one thing. Is that what we need to take from this story? And the answer is absolutely not. The Bible is full of grace for sinners. All over scripture, there is this idea that we are all lost and helpless and hopeless and we cannot save ourselves. The story of the Exodus, God bringing his people from Egypt to the promised land, is saturated with the idea they didn't deserve it. They didn't do it themselves. They couldn't have rescued themselves. God had to rescue them. That's not what's going on here. What is going on here is that Moses had a role. He had a role to point God's people to God's glory. And at a crucial moment, Moses sought to take the credit and the glory for himself. He failed to yield to God's glory. When I was shortly after graduating high school, I was in a very bad car accident. I was coming home from church with my girlfriend at the time. My church was on one side of a four-lane highway. My, my home was on, off this country road on the other side of a four-lane highway. And so coming out of the church, you had to cross a four-lane highway at the top of a hill. Cars whizzing by 55 miles an hour. And through God's providential care, uh, my, my car couldn't be used at that time. So my girlfriend had brought her car to pick me up that morning. And her car was this little dinky old car. And, and there was something wrong with the door, if I remember correct. And my dad was like, just leave the car here and take my car. He had a big Buick Park Avenue, big tank of a car. Praise God for that. Because honestly, I'm pretty sure if we had been in my girlfriend's car, we would have both been killed. I pulled up to the stop sign and I stopped and I looked to my left and I saw a car coming. But I had enough room to make it. And I looked to the right, and I didn't see anybody coming, and I gunned it. And I shot across the highway, which really was the only way to cross this highway. Just as I was about to get to the other side of the highway, it felt like I stood in place, and the whole car just lurched. And the steering wheel ended up over here, and my head was here, and out of the corner of my eye, I remember very vividly seeing the airbag deploy and go off, and like the powder of the airbag spread. It was like slow motion. And I kid you not, I remember in that moment thinking, that's kind of cool. I, I, I'm not making that up. That crossed my mind like I've never seen that before. My left foot caught on the brake pedal and the brake pedal bent at a 90 degree angle. My right leg hit the car phone mount. We had car phones back then and just sliced it open. My girlfriend's head, she was in the passenger seat, hit the side of the car. She was knocked unconscious. There was a white pickup truck. It was a sunny day and a hill and a glare and I didn't see it. And he hit us going 65 miles an hour. 
There's so much with that story. It was miraculous. God saved us. God saved the, the owner of the pickup truck. He wasn't wearing a seatbelt. The, the top of the steering wheel bent over. His head hit the windshield. He walked away from that fine. It was unbelievable. But I had to go to court. That was a miracle too because I showed up in court and, and the, the driver of the pickup truck was there and I thought, uh-oh, I'm getting sued. I'm in big trouble. They called the case. I get up. I get in line. He gets up and gets in line with me here and I'm kind of like, hey. <laughs> and he goes, hey. I'm like, why are you here? He goes, I don't know. They just told me I had to be here. I'm like, I don't really care. Everything's fine. I was like, oh, good. He wasn't suing me. But I get called up in front of the judge and he goes through the details of the case and he says, so you're here because you failed to stop at a stop sign and being a young, arrogant boy, I said, no, your honor, that's not true. I did stop. I stopped at the stop sign. And he said, you got hit crossing the road, didn't you? I said, yes, sir. He said, you failed to yield. That's really stuck with me. The point of the stop sign is not to go through the the motion of putting on the brakes, coming to a stop, and then going. The point of the stop sign is to go through those motions to yield the right of way to someone who has it. To stop that they may go. I failed to yield. Failing to give God glory in scripture is an important theme. And it is something that is so fundamental to each one of us. We want to be the heroes. We want to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We want to get ourselves out of situations. We want to say, I'm not that bad. I can save myself. And we fail to take into account that God is God. That he is holy. He is greater and other than us. He is set apart. And his glory is the display of all that he is. And when in those moments we say, I've got this, God, I don't need you, instead of reflecting God's glory, we're turning the spotlight on ourselves. And over and over again in Scripture, God shows His glory. And He wants His people to reflect that holiness and that glory that others will see who He is. So often we fail to yield the glory to God. Now, I want to be careful here. This is, it's not saying like, well, I'm going to do something great and amazing and God's just kind of whiny up in heaven going, hey, just be careful to give me a little bit of credit. That's not who God is. Anything great that we think we can do, any benefit that we can bring to this world, the Bible is very clear. It is because God is at work. It is his strength, his plan, his power, his glory, his holiness. It's not just that we're failing to give glory to God. It's that we are stealing the glory that's already his. That's what Moses did. Sin causes us to want to make much of ourselves. We want to think that we've got it all together. We've got it all figured out. God, just get out of my way or just bless what I'm doing because I got this. And we fail to yield to the glory of God. This message has worked its way into churches. 
Christians bring this idea, preachers, pastors, church leaders bring this idea into church that God just wants to make you happy and make much of you. And the whole focus of the church becomes making much of the people. You can have your best life now. You can be rich and successful. God just wants to bless you and pour out his blessing on what you already want. So you do what you want to do and God has to bless it. That is not the message of scripture. And that is robbing God of his glory. Our culture thrives on this message. Be the person with the most influence, the most followers, the most money, the most popularity. Be the most powerful, the most aggressive. Make sure that everybody sees that anyone that disagrees with you is a complete idiot. Just mock them and put them down and insult them. We take God out of everything so that we can make everything about ourselves. And we can take all the credit. And here's the thing, friends. Both in churches and in our society... It doesn't work. And people who have spent generations trying to make much of themselves are feeling like there's no purpose at all. James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. Do you see our role there? Humble yourself before the Lord. Trust Him. Declare his holiness and his glory. Focus there. Understand that it's not about you. Make God first. Admit that he is first. Live that he is first. And then he will lift you up. God lifted up Moses over and over and over again. God made much of Moses. God proved that Moses was God's chosen instrument over and over again. I can't think of a higher place in scripture other than Jesus Christ himself than the way that God worked through Moses. But in this moment, God, or Moses rather, made it only about himself. See, it's not that God wants us to be miserable This is not saying be miserable before the Lord and that's what God wants. It's that God knows that our greatness will only come when we yield the greater greatness of God's holiness and glory. When God is first, whatever place we have will be much better than us trying to make ourselves first. Humble yourself in sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Moses failed to yield to God's glory. He wanted to make that story, that moment about himself. We see this throughout scripture. Leaders who seem to want to be the hero. It seems like everything's going great. And it's like the people are like, now this is the guy that God's going to use to make everything better. And then that person screws up. And I think it's amazing that scripture is very intent on showing how messed up these people are. I think it's great that the authors of scripture are like holding up these people and saying, look, this person is not perfect. I think it's great that Moses wrote the book of Numbers and penned the words showing us he really messed up. Yes, God as the divine author told him to write it down, but Moses' hands wrote these words to help us to understand the lesson Don't steal the glory of God. And the failures of these people in Scripture, generation to generation, these so-called would-be heroes, show us that no person, not me, 
not you, not anybody else, no political leader, no sports figure, nobody else can be the hero that we actually need until Jesus comes along. And here we have the hero that never fails, who gives all the glory to God even though he was equal to God, who completely submits to God's plan even when it means giving his own life in our place. The hero that we need, the one that we must make much of, is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And when we yield to his glory, to his greater plan and purpose for this world, we will see that God makes much of us according to his plan and his purpose. But when we try to grab it for ourselves, we will be miserable and always feeling like we must have more. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your son. And thank you for these examples throughout scripture. As hard as they are, it's, it's hard at times because they're so ancient. And it's a different culture, a different time, different place names that we're not familiar with. But what a richness is there. And it's hard because these lessons are tough. We don't want to hear it. We don't want to be challenged by them. We don't want to see ourselves in Moses. We don't want to have to ask the question, how have I done this as well? And God, we know from all of Scripture, from other places, you love Moses. We know that he is with you, that you used him in powerful ways. This is not your rejection of him. But Moses did, as the numbers will tell us, Moses died in the wilderness without ever stepping foot in the promised land. But Father, you also use these stories to point to a greater need. We don't need a human hero. We don't need better leaders. We don't need ourselves to be the ones that fix everything as if we could. But all of these things point us forward to the need that we all have for Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I pray that each one of us would bow on our knee before you and declare you are God and I am not. That in our lives we would reflect and shine forth and declare your glory and your holiness for this world to see. May we never claim that glory and that credit for ourselves, but in everything we do, point people to how great and awesome you are. Because it's there in your greatness that they can be changed as well and saved by your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.